Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of four books on cycling, almost five, very excited for what's coming in roughly June as the estimated time. Uh, Also lover and writer about all things fitness related, uh, whether that's running or rock climbing or of course biking. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a coach with smartathlete.ca. I race bikes, mostly mountain bikes, but all types of bikes. Um, And I'm a kinesiologist, and that means that I really just like looking at and helping people move better. So all types of different movement, whether that's in the gym or doing any of the variety of sports we talk about here on The Consummate Athlete. Yeah, and this week we actually are talking about one of Peter's nearest and dearest topics, I'd have to say. Uh, We have CTS coach Jim Rutberg with us, and he is on his third edition of the Time Crunch Cyclist, which is a training manual for, as you might have discerned from that title, cyclists who don't have a whole lot of time, which I think is, I mean, let's be real, most of us, right? For sure. If you're, you know, usually once you get past that that stage where you're trying to be a high-performance elite athlete or high-performance junior athlete, if you're so lucky... Uh, to have those resources when you're younger, you're you sort of become a busy person. You have work and family and you know groceries and everything else you have to do to keep yourself fed and and clean and have roof over your head. Absolutely, and I think so. Peter and I have actually been coaching a camp for high performance cyclists for the past month, and I mean I think we can both say. Even just when your one job is to ride and still be a functioning human being and take care of all your recovery needs, even that can actually be really tough. So to be able to cram that in with a family life and with work is, you know, pretty darn difficult. I know Peter and I keeping up with our other writing and this podcast and all of that stuff and Peter's coaching while we were at the training camp was definitely pretty brutal and I think I'm feeling the after effects now that we're finally back in Oxnard one of our favorite spots got here and yesterday I just suddenly took like a deep breath and realized oh my gosh I have time again so naturally the first thing I wanted to do was go out for a mountain bike ride today yeah I I don't feel like I have enough time in the day still but uh, definitely we have more time more now there's more things absolutely i know as soon as we got out of the campus like okay what are the five new projects i'm gonna tackle and i'm actually talking to someone about one of those projects tomorrow which i'm very excited about and i've been working on some more book stuff which is always super fun but more than that you know we got kind of a good month of a lot of cycling in to get ready for iron man and now i just have to kind of parlay that into the swimming and running and keep going with the cycling but I think that was a good push to have to get started on the volume. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely some good riding for sure. Busy, busy month, but yeah, I think talking to Jim today and the podcast was was really good. Like Molly said, most of my clients are are what I call quote unquote busy people. Um, I don't know why I put quotes around it because they are fairly busy. They <laughs> yeah. have a lot going on, but. Um, I guess I put quotes because there's so much under that like busy like in what we're saying. You know, busy doesn't really capture what that means, but when we're talking about, you know, looking at your performance and trying to find time to train, get yourself dressed and, you know, keep your bike running and all this stuff, you know, having efficient training is usually what these busy people are looking for, training that's going to address their goals and have them ready for race day. 
um, but also using the time they have because if we look at sort of a standard, I would say standard Joe Friel type periodization um, or just traditional periodization, you know, you only have so many hours in the week and that doesn't really change for most people. You know, it's that, that standard eight hours. You, you sort of sneak away each week. You do sort of a 30 minutes to an hour during the week and then you have maybe a, a longer ride on the weekend, maybe two if you're lucky. Um, and so what do you do with those and how do you maintain, how do you build a base? You know, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you fit in the threshold and the intervals and, you know, how much is too much intensity and what about strength training and... Uh, so that's what we talk about is this third edition of the time current cycles today with Jim and he talks about how they've actually added up to the amount of sort of strength training in the book and then they've also added a huge nutrition component including some recipes and, and that sort of stuff yeah so interesting talk- to see that it is that consummate athlete where it's not just pedaling your bike because as he says you, you run at a time at some point you're doing all the intervals and a lot of people that really get into this time crunch thing over the first two editions find you know they're, they're doing they're eating okay um and they're doing all these intervals and you know it's working but only so well because there's you know only so much they can do you can only add so many intervals and so much intensity until you're basically maxing out every day mm-hmm. you know on your bike so interesting to see that it's becoming more holistic even at this i guess hack sort of you know or Holistic hack. I like holistic it. Holistic hack. Yeah. Actually, I just wrote a good article for Nylon. I'm going to say it's a good article. I think it's a great article um, for Nylon, a fashion magazine about a uh, sort of eight hacks to up your health and wellness. Um, and it, yeah, a lot of it kind of went away from the traditional, you know, workout, and it was a lot more little stuff like actually making sure you're sleeping and, you know, getting in see. enough water. Is that a hack? It is. Sleep hygiene, actually. Uh, which one person commented, it's just like, WTF is sleep hygiene. So then I had to jump in and tell them to read the article, basically. <laughs> uh, but that was interesting, just kind of bringing that idea to to sort of the masses. Because everyone kind of has the idea of, like, getting fit means this crazy, you know, jump into insane five hours a day kind of thing. But, you know a lot of the major gains can actually be made in a really simple way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting seeing, I think the the time crunch stuff, I use it a, a fair bit with clients, at least some of the concepts. Um, you know, I think that the tough thing when people look at it, they assume that it's going hard, mm-hmm. but then they're going sort of moderately hard and they actually train too much. So it's interesting, like the key things that Jim talks about is that you're only training three or four days a week, you know, so... I think that's a little different for a lot of people and those days are pretty focused, which I think is challenging for a lot of people as well because they always want to go for a group ride or they want to, you know, do a sufferfest or something and so they won't, you know, it, it's hard for them to, they'll just add that on top and then you're not quite doing the program. So, mm-hmm. so it's interesting. Yeah. I just pictured somebody reading Time Crunch Cyclist and the four-hour work week and then just not knowing what to do with themselves at only 12 hours a week of training and work. That would be eight, no? Well, no, if you, like, trained eight hours a week and oh, you worked I four. I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah. I was thinking four days. Things things could get pretty crazy. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's let's get into the podcast. Enjoy our chat with Jim. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Before we get going, let's hear a word from our show sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ provides life insurance for healthy, active people like yourself, dare I say, consummate athletes like yourself. They have competitive rates, 
and a great website. If you can go check it out at healthiq.com slash consummate athlete, you'll help us out and you'll be helping yourself out by finding out a little bit more about life insurance, whether you need it, and what some options are. No pressure, just go check out the website, try a quiz. Thanks guys. All right, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We're here today with Jim Rutberg. He's a CTS coach, uh, an author, and a co-author. And just recently, or most recently, he's the book, The Time Crunch Cyclist, the third edition, has been released. Um, it, the first edition uh, was one book that I really, really enjoyed. It's got some really cool concepts that I definitely use in my own coaching. Uh, so we're really excited to have Jim here today. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So what I'd love to do is just start, you know, often when we have authors on, you know, sometimes they're, they're other, the other stuff they do, their coaching or whatever, their own athletic ability, it's sort of glossed over and they've written this book. But sometimes we don't do a great job of, con- you know, giving a context of who that person is. So can you give us sort of an idea of where you've been and what you're, what you're up to? Sure. Um, as a, you know, as a junior and college uh, athlete, I was a cyclist and raced a little bit after uh, college as well. Um, and then I started with CTS pretty much when the company started, uh, in 2000. So I've been here, uh, about 17 years and, um, started writing books and, and articles and, um, website content and things like that pretty much from the get go. Um, and I think at this point we're at, um, eight books. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we're at eight books at this point. Um, I've, done most of the the writing with the cycling books and then uh, this past year was uh, able to work with Jason Coop, one of our other coaches, on a uh, ultra running book, which uh, was a nice stretch outside of of my uh, comfort zone in cycling. Very nice. Very nice. And so then from there, are you actively coaching as well or your main uh, main job then is just with the marketing media for CTS? I do a little bit of coaching, but I backed away from it um, for the most part because I, I noticed after a while that um, I wasn't really as passionate about the coaching side as I was about the, um, the I felt like I could have a greater impact with writing and with uh, the blogs and with the, the books and things so that my own reach would actually expand a bit more outside of the one-to-one interaction with a certain number of athletes. Um, and then, I, too, I, one of the nice parts about being within this environment is you get to see some of the other coaches and how how passionate they are working with one-on-one with athletes. And when you see that and you see somebody who's really good at it and you realize, yeah, that's, that's not me. I, I, that's not what, I, that what really is all that as fulfilling for me. It made the decision easy to say, I'm going to do what I really like to do and support their ability to do what they really like to do um, as a career. That's interesting because certainly a lot of people with coaching would, you know, stick in because it's a little extra money or something, but to have, you know, I, like you say, maybe it was your environment sort of illustrated it more, more obviously to you, but um, that's good. And certainly with coaches there, they struggle because they're so good at, you know, as you say, where they have the passion for coaching, but they struggle in these other areas, the ones, you know, you're specializing in with the media and the marketing and, you know, the writing. Um, right. So, so you, you found yourself well, in that's, a nice niche. Yeah, that's one of the strengths of, you know, like, you know, we can 
actually thinking about it around here relatively um, quite a bit recently is, you know, the, the strength of a company environment versus sort of the independent coach out there. And there are a lot of really good independent coaches out there. Um, I think that one of the advantages and one of the reasons that people, uh, the coaches around here have gravitated here and, and stay here is the network of people that we have um, so that we can, the, the coaches coach more because we can, we can give them athletes uh, on a consistent basis instead of um, kind of them fighting for athletes within a, within a small local area. Um, and they get a, a wide variety of athletes, um, ages and sports and all kinds of stuff. And then just the continuing ed and, and mentorship and accountability and all of those kind of things that come from this environment. Um, but it also, I think, really allows them to just be coaches. And when you look at some of the data that uh, Training Peaks actually put together a couple of years ago, they their data showed that 75% of the people surveyed were doing um, coaching as a side job. Um, they weren't actually doing it as their, as their primary career. Um, and that's significant. I mean, it, it points to the fact that this is a hard industry to, to, um, to make a living in. Mm-hmm. And if we were, are able to really give people a, a viable career option and let them be coaches full time, um, that feels pretty good. Hmm. Is there... I, I, we definitely want to get into your book, but I think this is interesting, certainly to me, but I think there's other coaches that listen. And uh... Yeah, one mm-hmm. of our last Q&A episodes, somebody was asking about the whole idea of getting kind of into coaching. Yeah, we can certainly go that way. So is there a way, you know, when you have your younger coaches and stuff, is there any advice you would give to sort of someone who's starting into coaching and, you know, who wants to do the best they can and not become one of these coaches that does it at, you know, 10% and then sort of, tails off and goes and works somewhere else because the money's better or something? Um, the, the hard part about that is that it's whether they can do it full-time or not full-time is, seems to have less to do with how good of a coach they are, how well they know the science or things along those lines, and more of their environment. How much reach can they get? How many people are in the environment? If you're in a small town in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be kind of difficult. Um, if you're in a large area that is a big cycling uh, community and you're in a lot of group rides and things like that where you can participate in the community and pull athletes that way, it can be a lot easier. Um, so the, the I don't know that the skill level or quality level and the uh, ability to make a living at it are actually um, are, are completely connected. I think that a lot of it has to do with environmental factors and where people are and things like that. So um, for young coaches, I think the biggest thing is to coach. Um, one of the things that we've been doing for a lot of years, and um, we bring coaches in who are pretty young and they coach so much within the first three years that they're here, that their learning curve is very steep. They're coaching full time. They're doing training camps. Um, they are doing projects for coaching education and, all of these things so that they get they interact with more athletes and are coaching more within that three year time frame than a lot of sort of independent coaches might be able to do in five to seven years. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I like your thought about 
thinking about where you're opening your business or thinking about where you're practicing. Um, there's, I, there's a book I always think back to called Where's Your or Who's Your City rather, and it's about similar like based on what you're, if you're gonna act, you know, you you would if you wouldn't do it in the middle of nowhere, you'd go to like Hollywood or New York or Broadway or something, right? So by the same token, mm-hmm. like Colorado Springs, like you guys opened a center in Colorado Springs for a reason. It wasn't, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, Ironically, the vast majority of our athletes are elsewhere. Um, we coach, we, we really don't have that many athletes in the Springs. It's, uh, a lot of our athletes are the folks who are in smaller areas because they don't have access to someone uh, locally. Uh, we have a lot of international athletes. Um, from places where coaching hasn't um, caught on as much. Right. You know, there's coaching is a pretty mature industry in the United States, but um, in Latin America, it really isn't. So the, the resources that are available to athletes um, are, are there are far fewer resources available for athletes. Um, so that's been sort of a, a growth area for us too. Okay. Um. So conversely, go go somewhere where there aren't coaches if you want to start your own coaching business. Potentially, I guess. Aren't coaches, but are a lot of cyclists. Yeah, so we're a lot of athletes, yeah. yeah. Or the athletes are, not the, not the coaches. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, that was good. I didn't expect we'd get into sort of coach development a bit there, but that's, that's pretty cool to see. Do you see a, a mistake, Jim? Like, is there something that you see people doing really poorly, whether that's in social media or where they're spending their money on marketing or, you know, other than coaching, like you say, there's other factors. Is there something that you can pinpoint that like people just do really poorly and you always see it? Um, I think that one of the things that is that is, I think that people try to, that they do as a mistake is they, is over-reliance on on the science end. I mean, we all love power meters and we all love the sports science end of, of coaching, but um, some people kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit too far and forget that they're dealing with a human. Um, and, you know, you can analyze a power file within an inch of its life and um, the athlete may not get any better. You still have to know how to coach the athlete and know you know, be a, a person who can relate to an athlete, can inspire an athlete, can can get them to do something or achieve something that they don't even believe they can achieve. Right. That's not that's not numbers based. That's coaching based. Um, so sometimes I think the the either over reliance on science um, or the using trying to prove that you know what you're doing as a coach simply because you're going to analyze a file better than the next guy. Um, I think that's sometimes uh, a little bit of a weakness for, for coaches where they they rely on that a little bit too heavily and sometimes the athletes still don't respond. Mm-hmm. No, I'm so happy you said that. I think that's there's so much technology now and everyone thinks they're an exercise physiologist, but very few of us are, are officially or, or <laughs> smart enough generally. But um, yeah, I think that's that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so let's get into your latest book, the third edition of the Time Crunch Cyclist. Uh, can you give us just to start off, what like how do you qualify as a Time Crunch Cyclist? Who are we talking to here? Um, well, I mean the the subtitle of the book says six hours a week. I think it kind of goes up to eight, maybe can even stretch to ten. Um, you know, it's somebody who 
really is at the uh, at the point where they just don't have enough training time to really be able to do a standard periodization plan anymore, where you gradually build up throughout the course of the entire winter and spring and start layering in intensity and things along those lines and that peak for this gigantic, you know, um, you know, this wonderful period of the year where you're as fast as you can be. Um, that, it, it's a, that system works perfectly, works beautifully, but you need a lot of time to be able to accomplish it. And the people who don't um, end up stagnating because they, there's just not enough, they don't have enough time to build an aerobic base and then layer on this and that and that. Um, similarly, they don't have enough focus because something always comes up. To do a long, you know, a gradual season-long periodization plan, your life has to be pretty predictable. You know, you can't have chunks of six weeks where life gets in the way. Um, and one of the things that we've found over the years is the busier uh, a person is, they're career professionals, they're family-oriented uh, or have family priorities, there are chunks of the year where they have to do something else. They have to prioritize something other than this structured training plan. Um, it was easy when we were in our 20s and didn't have any responsibilities. Now it's not so easy. Um, so we wanted to find a way that we could get people to perform well and have fun and be competitive, um, but be able to ramp them up quickly enough that they could do it in the time frame, uh, you know, over time frame that they could focus on and accomplish. Um, so we it kind of adapted the, the reality of these people's lives, the fact that there are going to be chunks of time where they can't train as much or they have to focus on other things, and then use training principles to find a solution to those problems. Okay. Um, so then with the third edition, what, what has sort of evolved? You know, you're many years now from the first one. So what, what has changed in this time crunch cyclist approach or periodization since the, you guys, you initially came up with it? Sure. So the, you know, one of the things that we've found with the sort of low volume, high intensity, um, training plans is people make incremental improvements as they continue to use the program cycle after cycle. So somebody might be able to do the program twice, maybe three times during a 12 month period. Um, and some people were doing them successively for a couple of years and they would make incremental improvements each time they went through it. Um, but eventually you do reach a point where with the time you have available, you can't um, add any more workload. You know, the, the, the power outputs they can put out and the time that, the, that they're able to do it, the time and intensity, there's, there's just no more room there. Um, so then we started having to look for how else can we improve their performance from here, and it really came down to body weight. Um, and the idea of, well, we can increase VO2 by reducing weight because VO2 is typically measured by uh, milliliters per kilogram per minute. And, um, you know, you really increase power to weight ratio as well. And there's some other benefits in terms of uh, thermal regulation to being lighter as well. Um, but therein lay the challenge as well because the 
the time cards athlete population, they're usually in the range of, you know, 30 to 50, 55 years old, <clears throat> some a little older. They don't have a lot of weight to lose. You know, they're, they're probably in the range of maybe 10 or 15 pounds that they really, you know, stand to lose. Um, their diets are relatively good. Uh, the message has gotten out around not eating junk food and eating more whole foods and things along those lines. So the easy solutions of skip the junk food and start exercising are already out the window. Like it'd be a lot easier to, to do those kind of solutions with a sedentary, overweight audience. Um, this audience is, is trickier because the simple solutions have already taken place. Um, so then we really have to look into more eating behaviors than what you're eating. Because what you're eating is pretty good. Now we just have to find a way to make it so that you eat less of it. And but the simple, you know, just eat less is um, a pretty short book. Nice. Fair enough. Now, do you look at body composition versus body weight at all? Like, you know, I've seen people who are, their weight is okay, but they're maybe you know, not as muscular as they could be. And, you know, they are as skinny as they are, but, you know, they have some yeah. body fat type thing. Well, one of the things that, that um, has changed over the years as well, is, you know, there's always been a debate within endurance sports about um, weight training or strength training for endurance athletes. And it's the evidence isn't great on either side as to whether, um, Actual strength training is going to make you faster on a bicycle. Is deadlifting or squats or lunges, are they actually going to translate the power on the bike? Um, but what is clear is that, especially as we get older, there is benefit to having more muscle mass or having maintaining muscle mass, not losing it, um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Number, the biggest one to me is that you're just a more functional human. Um, and fitness and strength give you more options. I think we probably all know very dedicated cyclists who are essentially trapped on their bikes because they have a huge aerobic engine, but one game of pickup basketball and they're crippled for three days. Um, you know, they're just not used to weight-bearing exercise. They can't move side to side because they're just not adapted to it. Um, so strength training from, from that standpoint um, helps people because it, it, it allows them to be more consistent. Lifting luggage or, or moving furniture doesn't throw out their back, which means that they can stay on the bike and not miss two weeks of, of training. Um, it allows them to be on a, a business trip and use the hotel gym for just some form of exercise and not hurt themselves. It allows them to go for a hike with the kids or play football in the backyard without getting hurt. Um, so I think that there's a, some of that, the, the diversity is really the main benefit of uh, strength training for endurance athletes, um, you know, and, and old, but not older, a more mature um, athlete population. Sure. Did you look at um, like different modes? You know, like different, you know, being less efficient, say in like a, a running or, or something like that, or even in a strength training sort of conditioning environment, 
um, sort of replacing some of the bike training with that to try and get like gains out of like a block of that. So say like a cross country ski block or something like that. Usually we leave that up to the athlete in terms of what they want to do. Again, most of our athletes are in the um, sort of in that amateur category that they want to stay fit and then nobody's, you know, really winning national. I mean, we have some national champions and things like that, but the vast majority are people who want to stay fit and, and enjoy it and things like that. So, um, sorry, is that, do you guys hear that too? I think it answers the question for sure. Yeah. I was just, uh, you got me thinking as far as, you know, once someone's topped out, you know, you can only add so much intensity to the week. What are the other variables? So the first thing I thought of was sort of variety in the, in the mode. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem you run into, especially with time crunched athletes, is the fact that there's only so much time in the week and they haven't even left. So if you take time away from what they can do on the bike, what's going to happen to their ability to, to have enough sports-specific workload to improve their performance? Mm-hmm. Um, the nice part, though, is for a lot of the time crunched athletes, they can find a way to add body weight resistance strength training in addition to their cycling Um, because it really doesn't take very long. And if you're riding three to four days a week, you have three or four days a week where you're not doing anything. I mean, one of the benefits of of the plan is that you actually end up with a lot of recovery time. Now, if you take some of that recovery time in your strength training instead, you don't want to obviously have as much recovery, but um, they tend to, most people tend to be able to find a way to, to fit it in if they want. And then it becomes a, a balancing act of, is it, if it's really your sports specific season, then maybe you're doing less of it or none of it. And then when it's not as sports specific a season, it's the winter, it's um, fall or some period where you're not um, focused on an event, then maybe you increase it a bit. Um, because again, we're not trying to incorporate strength training to the to the level necessarily that you're making these huge gains in strength because it's important for the cycling component. It's mainly you're doing it because you want to be a well-rounded human who can continue exercising for many more years. Sure. And that makes sense. Those the that sort of masters clientele like shoulders and stuff you have rotator cuffs going all the time and mm-hmm. like you say the basketball achilles tendon is a classic and kid jumping on you and throwing at your back is another so um, yep yeah so just moving and having those joints go through some sort of range of motion is, is a huge help um would you categorize the the rough idea of the time crunch cyclist as a block periodization structure yeah yeah i would i know i think it's I mean, what, what they, what's popular now with the buzzword now is sort of the reverse periodization concept of you're doing harder efforts first um, or harder efforts that are further away from your actual event um, as opposed to building up to really hard efforts right before your event. Um, because we end up doing blocks of mostly VO2 exercise, you know, mostly VO2 workouts. Um, and, and we start out with lactate threshold workouts 
um, we essentially make the assumption that you've been riding and it's not, you're not coming off the couch to get to do this. Um, you have some level of, of experience and aerobic fitness coming into it. Um, and then we jump into LT work and then pretty quickly get into PO2 max. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, the, so the, the, the benefit, the cost and benefit are that, um, we know that we're building high end fitness quickly without a big aerobic system base underneath it. And it'll enable somebody to get to sort of competitive or fun fitness um, pretty quickly so that they can have have some fun and, you know, do well in the group ride and um, ride like they would like to. Um, but it doesn't last long. It, it can't because it's not supported by this big aerobic uh, base underneath it those workouts take more out of you. The fatigue builds pretty quickly um, and the fitness is essentially top heavy and event and it will collapse under its own weight if you try to push um, too long. And that length of time is roughly 12 to 14 weeks. You know, the, the program builds through sort of weeks eight to 11 and some people can feather it or, or push it a little bit further than that. But eventually it becomes very evident that it's time for a break because you, you just go slower and slower and slower. It, it, your performance kind of falls off the cliff. Okay, that makes sense. So you're, you're not denying that there's, in an optimal world, we would still go out and do some more endurance-based training. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we recommend people do in between cycles. So in the four weeks, six weeks that you're going to be um, in between these, build period, focusing on endurance and tempo riding and maintaining the same schedule. So one of the big things that uh, is important for one of probably the most important thing for time crime cyclists is consistency. So even if you're, let's say you're on one of the programs that's uh, four days a week, um, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, even when you're not in a build cycle and doing hard intervals, you should maintain the same schedule of when you're riding because otherwise that time is going to get siphoned away to something else and it's going to be harder to try to carve it out of your schedule again the next time um so we definitely like people to stay on a on a good schedule you just have to back off the intensity so that because you, you can't you can't uh can't sustain that intensity for any longer you have to refocus on on endurance So, I've always said that the the value proposition that I tell that I give to people is that would you rather be really good for a short period of time or mediocre year round? <laughs> and that's kind of that that's what happens. I mean, if I don't if I don't ride enough to have enough workload to really make progress, and I just keep doing that. I'm just going to be mediocre year round. I'm going to go to the group ride every week. I'm going to get dropped or struggle to hang on. And it's no fun. Um, but if I can change the periodization around a little bit, focus on higher intensity efforts for, you know, this period or that, or that period, and I can get some of that fitness and have that fun. Great. I mean, I'm not saying I, we've never said that this is something that's going to, you know, be, build you up and, and maintain this race winning fitness from 
March through September. Um, but it was all about um, that athlete identity. Being an endurance athlete is really difficult. And, it, and if, it's, if you're not good at it or if you're never really good at it, um, it's too difficult to continue doing. Um, so my big goal with the Time Crunch books has been to keep athletes engaged and keep them in the sport. Um, because it, again, the, this sport is too hard to continue doing if it's not fun. And when you're getting dropped and you're struggling on every ride, it's not fun. Um, you know, but if we can give people that glimpse of being fast and performing well and just even winning the, you know, city limit sprint and being, you know, having fun with the guys on or and Dale's on the, on the group ride, that can be enough to keep somebody in it. And, maintain that identity of on the cyclist. Okay. What would you say the most commonly misunderstood concept with the time crunch cyclist is? Um, maybe the, we have this concept of the three hour limit. Um, and it's based on the idea that you're, you know, you're doing with the train, with this, with the workouts that are in the program, the high intensity VO2 max type workouts, you are going to be best suited to events and rides that are shorter than three hours. But somehow we in the culture of cycling, we've made it um, that we've, we've culturally decided that unless you can do the epic six hour ride, you're not a real cyclist. And when you really then take a step back and look at what most amateur cyclists do, if it's a one-hour criterium, a 45-minute cyclocross race, a one- to two-hour cross-country mountain bike race, even road races at the master's level tend to be uh, 60 miles or, or shorter. Um, so they're two to three hours. Um, you have to look at what you're preparing for and want to be good at and realize that if you're, if I can get you to be good within that three hour period, there's no, we're not, um, shortchanging you in any way. We're really not saying you, you're no less of a cyclist just because, um, you're not, you don't have the fitness to do both a criterium and a 12 hour race at the same time. I love that. It's interesting. We're actually at a camp where we're sort of constantly reminding athletes of that because they all have different disciplines that they're, they're racing. And some of them, yeah, like five minutes will be their race and others are going to be at stage mm -hmm. races. So just trying to remind the, the ones with the five minute efforts that they're more, more isn't better. Yeah. <laughs> they're not doing the same workout. Like, yeah. Well, the other piece too, that I think that people uh, are a little scared of with it, something like time crunch cyclist, um, uh, program is that somehow they're going to be at a disadvantage in those short races. So take the criterion, for instance, they think, well, you know, that guy over there is riding, you know, he rides 20 hours a week. I'm never going to be able to compete with him. The difference is that the guy who rides 20 hours a week and has a higher training volume, he has more matches to burn. doesn't mean that the matches that you have burn any less brightly. Um, your effort, the efforts that you have can be just as strong as his. You just have fewer of them. You have to ride more conservatively. You have to be more careful. Um, but 
and you know that per- the other person with the higher volume training program, they can recover between efforts a little bit better, gives them more opportunities to make mistakes because they have this bank of fitness they can rely on. So you have to be more strategic and smart about how you're racing. But when it comes down to accelerating out of the final corner, as long as you two have been reasonably smart, you can beat him just as well as anybody else could. You know, the, the, the power is there. It's just you don't have time, uh, you don't have extra um, efforts to waste. Yeah, that's really good. I like that. I hadn't, certainly the culture is there and it's sort of just like the running with the five or the five K used to be like where all the athletes went, but then all of a sudden like marathon was the thing everyone had to do and no one does five Ks, but five yeah. K is very athletic and, and very fun. But. And now everybody's not everybody. Now the, the growth area is, seems to be ultra running. So you have all the, and now the, the speed is coming into ultra running. And it, we used to see that with, um, it's the same evolution that happened in endurance mountain biking. So the early years of Leadville or some of the other uh, big 100-mile races, it, the winners were fit, certainly, great athletes, but they weren't all that fast. And then some of the sort of elite racers started coming into those sports, and you saw the times plummet. Um, you know, they were cutting an hour, two hours off of finishing times. Mm-hmm. Um and the same is happening these days in ultra running. Um, and the same happened in Ironman triathlon, um, probably five to seven years ago, maybe a little bit before that, where the, the, as you said, it's sort of like the athlete. I, I shouldn't phrase it that way because that is sort of a, it gets down to the athletes who were there before speed comes into endurance sports. Um, or ultra endurance sports, and that changes the the, the dynamic. Yeah, and then people are getting more and more serious about all of it, right? So now you have more technology yeah. and more training directly for it, and and all that sort of stuff. So it's certainly a trend, and don't want to ignore it. But like you say, there's lots of fun to be had under three hours for sure. Um, yeah, I know one of the big things people like with the books is like the strategies for adjusting when life gets in the way. Um, can you speak to sort of some of those strategies that, you know, okay, we have our four days a week we're training, but, you know, the kids have to go to basketball an extra day this week. I can't do the, the, the one weekday session. So is there, what are those sort of main workaround strategies? Um, fitting, I mean, it's sort of fitting it in where you, where you can. The ideal is to carve out time that, is least likely to get disrupted. So a lot of the athletes will gravitate towards mornings simply because they have more control over um, the morning before the day gets away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, business travelers um, can restructure somewhat around their trips so that they use um, the business trip portion of their week as recovery. Um, so they kind of will build a or rearrange things so that you end up with a two-day block or even a three-day block prior to the business trip and then use the time away for recovery. Um, I've known some people who do it the opposite way as well because when they're away from home on a business trip, um, once the you know business of the day is done, 
they're not with their family, so they have time that they can to themselves. Um, so it kind of just depends on on the uh, on the individual and what they can can do. Pilots, for instance, we for some reason have a good number of of airline pilots, um, and they have to do workarounds because of their their um, flight schedules because they're only home for they're home for blocks of time, and then they're definitely not able to exercise for parts of time. Um, so they have to make some some adjustments as well. I think that morning piece is, is a good one and sort of setting up your program and schedule for success right off the bat often is overlooked. You know, we start with a week at a time or today and forget to sort of just carve that in and schedule it in. I think the big thing too is not getting, not stressing out too much about missing the occasional workout. I mean, it's it goes back to that idea of, of um, nobody's, we're not getting paid for there's no paycheck attached to whether or not you're riding um, your bike fast or not at this, for most of the people who are, on, who are doing this. Um, and part of the part of the reason that people are doing it is either as a pressure valve for stress or uh, to feel better, to perform better um, in life as well as on the bike. So if if fitting your training in is a stressor as opposed to a way to relieve stress, um, then that in itself is something that has to be dealt with. That has to, you have to take a look at why you're doing it, whether you're not, not doing yourself more harm than good, but whether you can rearrange things so that your training is not adding to the stress. Because if it does, it's harder to adapt to. I mean, you, you guys know sort of that it's, total stress on the body, not just the exercise stress. You have to be able to recover from them in order to adapt. So if you're just piling stress on stress, just trying to get your workouts into your lifestyle, um, that in itself can be a problem. Yeah, I think that's great. I know when I when I have clients starting, I'll often ask them sort of just to run, you know, when during the week they're going to train. Just give me like your rough weekly schedule, when you think you have and how much time. And usually you'll get like that you know, three hours on a Thursday or three hours every day or whatever the time is, but, and then I'll usually just cut that down and sort of we'll have a conversation over like, do you actually have three hours or, you know, when are you doing laundry mm -hmm. and are you going to see your family and what about dinner? Right. You think you have three hours. Does your wife think you have three hours? Exactly. Oh, you should probably just get the wife to like send right the, the hours yeah. or right. husband. Yeah, there you go. All right. Um, we, you know, and we have, we've, we've heard both ways. I mean, we've, we've definitely gotten the athlete to um, their families kind of push back a little bit um, because they're surprised at how much time there's some level of misunderstanding there. Um, we've also, we get letters from and emails from spouses who are very thankful for the results that their spouse is seeing because we've taken the stress of um, of the training aspect away there the, that the, the athlete can now their husband or wife, they can just focus on the riding or the running or doing the activity and not stressing about all the other parts of it. Like, am I ready? Am I not ready? Am I doing too much? Am I doing enough? All that somebody else is handling that mm -hmm. so that they can go and 
and do the activity, um, and then it becomes that you know, stress reliever. And they, um, yeah, they're not as tense around the house and all the rest of it. Um, the, you know, the longer we work with an athlete, I'm sure you've seen this as well. The longer you work with an athlete, the less the conversations have to do with training. Um, you know, it's just sort of an in, inverse uh, relationship. And I've joked in the office that the at, after a while, your coach becomes the person, the only person left who really cares about what you did during the during the uh, weekend group ride. Your wife doesn't care anymore. Your coworkers think you're crazy. Um, you know, but you get to call somebody on Monday morning, go, you know, and tell them about this really cool ride you went on on the weekend. And that connection and somebody who has your best interests in mind is, you know, wants you to succeed and all that is, and is truly interested in, in that aspect of your life, which you're passionate about, um, is something that is very useful for maintaining that identity and, and passion within the sport. So it's not always about, you know, if we if you're coaching a person for 10 years, they know how to train at that point. You know, they've, they've, they can figure it out. Um, so you, at that point, the relationship is more around support, encouragement, dealing with the daily ups and downs, and it's, and, and it's more of a, a relationship than it is a, you know, here exactly the intervals that you need right now because you couldn't figure it out on your own. Yeah, and often like holding them back and giving them confidence or deciding, I guess, too, like you say, the, sometimes just taking that pressure of what do I do next or what do I do this week off off their shoulders, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's making, as you said, it's making it okay to not do anything. Right. You know, the, we, this, our, um, our society and a lot of the sort of type A athletes that we have, they, this idea of, of not doing as much, of cutting back, of holding back, of taking more rest, um, is so antithetical to the way the other aspects of their lives are run, um, whether it's in business or corporate world things along those lines that it it's foreign to them. Um, it provides a lot of, you know, once they get it, it really provides, a, uh, I think, a good balance for them. But for some people, it is, it's a real, uh, it's a real issue that they have to get used to. The idea of, no, today you're not doing anything. And actually for the next two days, you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Especially with the four day, I would imagine that would be a, a rude awakening for a few people who are pretty reliant on that. Yeah, once you get them, once you get a person to really see the the benefit of letting off the you know because training pushes applies pressure and pushes down you know in, in a way, um, and so many people haven't let that you know if you think of it as a giant spring. Um, so many people have never really let the spring go. You know, they've never really, they've never let up enough to actually see how much fitness they have. There's there's always fatigue sitting on top. Um, and when you really get somebody to let go of that, um, and that speed starts to and power starts to emerge, you may not have actually had that much impact on how much fitness they have you just got them to figure out how to kind of reveal it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i like it 
Okay, so last question. You got, the, you get, you got the person out of their own way, essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's coaching, right? Like, it doesn't have to be, like, if someone's just slamming the brake pedal on and the gas pedal, like, it's still coaching to say, let off the, the, the brake, right? Yeah, exactly. So I want to be respectful of your time here. The last question I thought was, you know, often when we're letting new books out and stuff, we'll, we'll update uh, a lot of the stuff in the books, and one of the things in a training book is usually the workouts. Have you added any new variety or, or different types of workouts that you can sort of tease us with for this third edition? So the irony of writing a third edition of Time Crime Cyclist is that the book, I think, nearly doubled in size. So when we wrote the first one, it really was a, a pretty thin book, and I actually worried about that because I thought, well, you know, then people are going to think that it's there's not enough substance here. Um, this time the book is 430 pages, so you look at it and go, how is it time crunch if it's going to take me, if the thing weighs five pounds or however much the thing weighs, it looks like a, an encyclopedia. Right. Um, but that was mainly because with each successive edition, we added training plans, and I didn't feel like we wanted to take them out. So we rearranged them, um, you know, in, in terms of how they're presented and, and things along those lines, but we really didn't take any out. Um so we have everything from cyclocross, oh, basically classified in my time. So you have the really short events, cyclocross, criteriums, um, I think road races are kind of fit in there as well. Um, and then the longer events, things, mid, well, mid-range events, surprising that we're now calling centuries mid-range events, but right. um, Grand Fondos and, and uh, centuries are kind of in that middle five to seven hour range. Um, and then we have the gravel and uh, endurance mountain bike events up at the 9 to 12 hour range. Um, and I think that's the one that people get are somewhat surprised about in terms of, well, in the beginning of the book, you said there's a three hour limit. And then you have training plans for a 12 hour race. So how do you square those those two? And um, for, for me, it's always been that you may not have the fastest. 12 hour, you know, you were let go, or you may not have the fastest 30 tons of experience, but you can be ready for it. And if you, um, if you know going in and you're realistic about the kind of fitness you have and, uh, what you're, what you can expect, then you can still have a good day and you can have fun. Um, but just because you can't have the fastest century you've ever had doesn't mean that it's a waste of time or, um, that you're not going to be physically prepared for it. Right. Awesome. It sounds good. Twice the size. It's, it sounds like an awesome book. So I'm excited uh, to get into The that. other thing that's in it that's really new is um, we have recipes from um, two Michelin star chefs, uh, a guy named uh, Michael Chiarello, who you might have seen on uh, Top Chef, and I think he won Top Chef Masters a few years ago. Wow. Um, he, his restaurants are in the Napa Valley, uh, has a restaurant called Latega, is I think his flagship restaurant. He um, is a, has been a CTS athlete for a while, and he provided recipes that uh, fit in with kind of the eating behaviors uh, that we discussed in the book. And then my, um, uh, Matthew Acarino is a, uh, another CTS athlete who has a restaurant called SBQR in San Francisco. He contributed some recipes as well. He's actually done uh, quite a bit of work with 
the um, Alesco Citadel team. He's been their team chef at a, at a couple of events and things along those lines, and has really been focusing on how do you use uh, flavor, sort of bold flavors, to counteract bland food. So, you know, bike racing food, the things that we all eat it prior to races and, you know, in, in the team bus and stage races and things, he said it's surprisingly bland. You know, and, and the, it's always, you know, plain rice and this and that. And he, they didn't want extra calories and things along those lines. So he, there's a lot of, there's a lot you can do with spices and flavorings and, and small amounts of, uh, adding very small amounts of calories to things, but making them taste better. Um, and you end up with athletes who eat more or eat better or more, in, they enjoy key meals more, which helps morale and everything else during long stage races because the food's good. Um, so when you look even at some of the teams now that have chefs at the Tour de France and things along those lines, um, some of that, that improved level of, of food is, or is, yeah, there's a nutritional value, but there's also the morale component um, of look, actually looking forward to going to dinner and being in a better mood about it as opposed to basically eating gruel. Right. Right, and enjoying that meal and stuff. And that probably feeds into eating a little less over the course of the day, yeah. too, because you're not sort of searching for that satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Okay. Alrighty. Well, I am very appreciative of you coming on, Jim. That's awesome. It's always good to talk to you guys who have been around for you know a while and you know get the the information from these books. The I, like I say, the time crunch cycles was a big one. I really enjoyed it and I reference it quite often to people. So. I'm sure the third edition will be no different. I can't wait to read it. Um, where can people get? Are you on Twitter? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the company's on Twitter uh, at Trainride. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Twitter at just Jay Rutberg. Um, and then we have the the Carmichael Training Systems Facebook page. Our website is Trainride, and then the book itself is available um, through Delapress through their website. Um, you can get it at sort of any of the online booksellers, and then we'll have it on our website shortly. Um, with uh, you can basically get signed copies through through our website. All right, perfect. All right, well, we'll let you go, Jim. Thanks again. We'll link to all that stuff and let you know when the show comes out. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, to check out all of the show notes for this episode, you can head over to consummateathlete.com. And we would love to hear from you about what you thought about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Molly J. Herford. And at Peter Glassford. And we would also love it if you would pop over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can tell every time a new episode, a new sport comes out. And if you would leave us a review, let us know how you're, how you're liking it, how we're doing, if there's anything you'd like to hear more of, that would be amazing. And you can find us over on Facebook now, uh, facebook.com backslash consummate athlete. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.